And the distinctive thing about this pickin' party is that women weren't invited to it because there was the idea that if men, women, and bluegrass music were to mix, there could be um, less than desirable consequences. We all know that it's the yin-yang that's like the best part of it. Like bringing men and women together in this music to me is like what's making it so exciting right now. And for my money, I think it's the female bands that are really leading the charge in some of the most interesting cutting-edge music coming out of the genre. Greetings, everyone. Keith Billick here. Welcome to the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. I am freshly back from my trip to IBMA, and any of you who have been to the IBMA, the International Bluegrass Music Association Convention, know that saying freshly back really does not capture the feeling that you have after a week of staying up till ungodly hours of the morning. In fact, there's a very corny joke that circulates around IBMA that is to say that it really stands for I've been mostly awake and true to form who who was I to you know betray that tradition so I I did get a lot done I set up a booth I got to chat with a bunch of you listeners which was really great so I appreciate any of you who stopped by to chat me up got to pick a few tunes with some of you got to sell a few t-shirts so the the number of cool kids out there has just increased by a few and let me see what else i got a few great interviews that i'm already excited to share with you those will be coming out over the you know next coming weeks and months and perhaps the coolest thing that happened was very close friend of the podcast uh grace van hoff who has been not only a featured guest on the show but she also is the graphic designer of the very very cool podcast logo that i use she won the ibma award for graphic designer of the year so proud we are of her and uh congrats to grace for that she even let me hold her trophy which uh that's probably the closest i'll get to one of those things i also deployed my highly trained tactical operations interviewer to uh conduct some man on the street interviews those will be coming out those are fairly humorous just short outtakes uh ambush style guerrilla interviews so I, i think i'll probably release a collection of those as a bonus episode so stay tuned for all of that i think you'll dig it and this is where i need to acknowledge that none of these cool things that i've been here talking about for the last minute or two would be at all possible without the lovely generous patreon subscribers go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and that's how you can support this show if you like what you're hearing and want it to continue because every little bit helps and basically you just sign up there to throw me a couple bucks per month and that really does help a lot in particular today we have a very special patreon supporter that is taylor shuck i actually met taylor when i was down uh you may recall i did a trip to nashville to do some interviews uh i ran into taylor there he's an awesome banjo player and he is a member of the mama said string band out of louisville kentucky so if you ever run into them enjoy the music and tell taylor i said hey uh taylor thank you for your support uh once again that's patreon.com slash banjo podcast And another perk is that you get to come to a monthly video meetup with myself and your your fellow Patreon supporters. And October's monthly meetup is going to be October 26th at 9 p.m. Eastern. And anyone who's on Patreon, you'll see some notices go out about that. But uh, anyone who signs up before the 26th, if you're hearing this in time, you can uh, you can join us for that. You can always contact me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com with any thoughts or comments or suggestions. (laughs) 
Today's featured guest is Allison Brown, the award-winning banjo player, composer, record producer, and the co-founder of Compass Records. So she wears a lot of hats, but at the essence of all of it is the fact that she is just a phenomenal talent on the banjo. She's one of my personal favorites. In fact, I think so highly of her that I, I, I'm pretty good usually at keeping my composure, talking to a, a lot of the guests I've had that I really look up to. But I, I admit, I had a few fanboy moments, I think, with Allison. It, I, I reminded myself of those old Chris Farley skits of, hey, hey, Allison, you remember when you recorded that album called Fair Weather? That was awesome. I, 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 I felt like I was doing that a bit, and uh, probably that will come through, but it's for good reason, because Allison is totally awesome. I love her playing, and she was a gracious host. So please enjoy this interview with Allison Brown. My name is Allison Brown. I'm from La Jolla, California, originally. And uh, I became a banjo player when I heard Earl Scruggs' Foggy Mountain Banjo record and decided that I really needed to learn how to make that sound. What age were you when you heard that? I was about 10 when I heard that record. Okay. So how did you go about pursuing this new fascination that you Well, had? it was great because I was taking guitar lessons from a, actually a law student, and he was the one who brought that record over, and he played a little bit of banjo too. So I was able to take a few banjo lessons from him and kind of try to get started. So you said you were already playing guitar and then you heard the banjo. Do you, can you describe what it was, you think, about the hearing the banjo that drew you that way? <laughs> it's that big bang moment, right, that mm. so many of us had. It, I, to me, it was just like, actually, my family was living in Connecticut at the time, and it was Paul Guernsey who brought over the record for me to check out. And to me, it just... Um, was this sound of like another America, like some other part of our country and our history that just really spoke to me, but wasn't part of my experience kind of growing up. Right. I take it your guitar teacher was not also a banjo teacher. Did you have to pursue that separately? Well, he was a banjo teacher, but oh. he was also going to law school. So he was, uh, he was off doing law school during the school year and and uh, I was kind of really more focused on fingerpick guitar until my uh -huh. family moved to San Diego. And fortunately for me, there was a really robust and still is very robust bluegrass scene in San Diego. So right. I joined the San Diego Bluegrass Club, and that's when I really started to get more into banjo. What was that like? Was it jams or what was being a member of that club? What did that involve? Well, um, for everybody who's grew up playing bluegrass in California, you'll know what I mean. It's like pizza palaces and bluegrass music right. are kind of go arm in arm. So the club met once a month at the Shakey's Pizza Palace and basically set up, you know, a stage and mics and bands would get up and perform. And then there was jamming in the parking lot. So for me, it meant um, just connecting with the local community and all the people who just so generously stood next to me and told me how to play dif different things that I was curious about. Yeah, what do you think people learn by going to those jams? Or what do you think you got out of that specifically that you might not have gotten from just private lessons or maybe self-directed learning? Mm -hmm. Well, everything, because to me, this music, it's all about community. That's, that's the richness of it. That's the part that you know, makes me so happy to be a member you know, of such a, such a generous and robust community. You, know, you, can't, you can sit in your room and practice, and you should. But it's not really until you're sitting and playing with other people and connecting through music that you're really experiencing the full joy of what the banjo can bring mm -hmm. to your life. And it's, you know, connecting with other people and making music together, but it's also the act of creating music that a listener can enjoy. And it's all that connectivity that that's the, that's the golden part of the whole experience, I think. I know that eventually you met up with a young Stuart Duncan to play a lot of music, but I guess in general, were you... Were you able to find people your own age, and was that important to you? Um, well, there weren't a lot of people my own age, but fortunately, Stuart was, you're right, you know, growing up in San Diego, and the first cl club meeting that I went to, actually, he was in a kid's band called the Pendleton Pickers, okay. and they had just won a trip to perform on the Grand Old Opry. And oh. I remember incredibly clearly hearing that band play Earl's Breakdown and hearing Stuart play Paul Warren's fiddle solo, and it just yeah. blew me away, so... So there weren't a lot of other kids at the time, but there were a few. And Stuart, you know, I was super fortunate to get to play a lot of music with him growing up. 
Yeah. So was most of your learning through that those community type events or were there lessons or other influences that you had at that point? Mm -hmm. I took lessons from a couple of, you know, different teachers, you know, at the New Expression in San Diego, which is a folk shop that's still there. But to me, it's like the, the really the steep growth curve part kicks in when you can actually get in those jams and start trying to make your own solo for rolling my sweet baby's arms. So yeah. if it weren't for that community, I mean, I liked the banjo, but for me, it was a struggle to get used to playing with metal picks because I was used to playing fingerstyle guitar right. with no picks. And, you know, I think it was really the joy and fun of getting to play that music with other people that's kind of really what kick-started the banjo for me. So it would have been a different experience if I had just been sitting in my room practicing and going once a week to take a lesson with a guy or, yeah. or a girl. Yeah. Obviously, you were drawn in by Earl Scruggs. What other players do um do you recall listening to and really digging? Yeah, uh, well, yeah, Earl for sure. That was kind of the portal into the whole world of banjo. But then, you know, pretty quickly I started to get into Tony Trishka. I loved the fact that he was pushing the envelope for the instrument. Um, Alan Mundy, just so many great things about his playing, left hand, right hand, just the whole thing. I love his whole sensibility. Right. And then, of course, John Hickman, who unfortunately we recently lost, but he was a great influence too. He was the guy in Southern California that everybody looked up to for banjo. with Stuart at, and we played at Magic Mountain, which is a theme park north of LA. Um, one summer, I think it's the summer I was 14. And I, uh, I was actually playing very bad dobro in that band, <laughs> but I was standing next to John who was playing very awesome banjo all yeah. summer. And so I really got to soak up a lot of what he was doing. And he was very generous too. It's just like that theme of, that runs through the bluegrass community. And he spent a lot of time sharing his tapes with me and, turning me on to Bill Emerson and, you know, kind of the generation before him that influenced him. And that, a that was general huge. mentor type of relationship, yeah, sounds like. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it, that didn't need to happen. He didn't need to spend his time with a 14-year-old kid, but he did. And that made a huge difference. Yeah, that's cool. Are there any specific things that you remember him teaching you on banjo, or was it this more general professionalism and, and influences and, and yeah I'd say it's probably more like I was going to say 10,000 foot view maybe like 5,000 foot view of the right. banjo it was just like standing next to a guy and like watching how he changes strings or watching how far his picks were extended off the ends of his fingers which uh -huh. the answer is further than most people and they were yeah. pretty straight so like nerding out about that kind of banjo stuff and you know and just watching how he'd play certain licks in certain places and so you know learning those licks and a lot of them I still play, and, and um, it always makes me smile because I remember John when I do. Are you up for demonstrating any of those licks? or? Um, I could, now that I say that, have to try to remember them. But sure, if you uh, give me a second, I will grab a banjo. John had a couple of signature licks that we used to that I found that I started playing all the time. So um, one of those was like when you'd go up to a D at the 12th fret, he would a lot of times go... Or, or even it was one of his, and he'd uh -huh. do this one a lot, I think. Which, of course, you can do in C or D. It was one of his, and um, he used to play Dixie Breakdown a lot, and he had a... The way I learned playing Dixie Breakdown is, uh, you know, kind of the Doug Dillard way, but okay. John's way was to go, you know, kind of use these G positions and go. Etc. So, yeah. I mean, they were just, they're small things, um, but they always make me think of John. And another lick of John's that I really like was something like this. He would go. What's cool about that lick is it's 
is you're playing the melody on the fifth string. Right. So, you know, I've got my first string open and my second string at the tenth fret. And I'm just kind of rocking back between the twelfth fret and the ninth fret on the fifth string and open. Yeah. Which, so it's, that's a great lick to throw in. He used to play it in Sally Gooden. Yeah, he seems to have a lot of those just rhythmic twists that when he when you when you shift where that melody is it gives it a little extra mm-hmm. funkiness to it or, or something like that yeah that's hard to a, describe that's but. a really good way to put it because yeah. he, he would also do like a some kind of lick like that a mm-hmm. lot of times so yeah he did think rhythmically that was that's a good way to look at it and you you mentioned being um influenced by earl of course but then also trishka and nowadays of course you're known as a very versatile player did that was that already creeping into your own playing this progressive sensibility well you know i kind of think you are what you eat musically Uh and i've always liked to listen to a lot of different things so that's part one and part two is i grew up in california so our notion or the california notion of what was bluegrass was much less parochial than what you might have found if you grew up in appalachia yeah so um it's always been natural for me to like look for other things to do with banjo. And then, of course, when David Grisman Quintet came out with that first Kaleidoscope record, uh-huh. that was huge on my hit parade. Yeah. I mean, just that idea of taking acoustically rooted music and going a, a kind of a new place with mm-hmm. it was really exciting to me. So I, I still kind of follow that muse. Great. What were the next steps in your career? How did you make the the leap then of going from being this young Dobro player. <laughs> I was to, terrible. Well, that was easy <laughs> to leap past that. But what were your next, you know, progresses? I know that you did a little bit of contest playing, but mm-hmm. eventually, of course, you're signing on with professional bands. And, and right. how did that all happen? Uh, well, the Dobro thing, that was just I, kind of a kind of a gift to get to be in the band and stand next to John. Uh-huh. And then um, it didn't make sense for John to continue to play in that band. So eventually I got to play, take over banjo duties, which was great. Um, and so all through high school I played, like, I guess you could say semi-professionally because we got paid to do it, but, mm-hmm. you know, we weren't really like professional musicians. Yeah. Um, but it was something that I never really lost the passion for. So after... You know, a lot of career twists and turns that had nothing to do with the music industry. Then I decided, you know, uh, that I wanted to try to make a go of it as a full-time thing. And that's when I had a chance to join Allison Krause and Union Station. And that was really my first kind of legitimately professional gig. At that point, were you starting to hear perhaps your own style on the instrument develop? And what do you think were the the things that made up that style? Mm-hmm. Or maybe still make up your style? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I've, I've always felt like, to the extent that I found my voice on this instrument, is more came through trying to write tunes for the banjo. Mm-hmm. So maybe more as a writer than a player on some level, you know? And so I think, I feel that my style maybe started to evolve once I put out my first solo record and of original tunes, which was called Simple Pleasures and came out, I think, around 1991. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that album. I really love it. So let's, yeah, let's talk about the composing then. I hear a lot of people, when they're asked about their composing, they might take an interesting role pattern and try to make a tune out of it or... Tony Trishka talks about giving himself sort of tricky assignments mm-hmm. that, that, he, that he does or other people assign themselves composing time. They're going to go in this room and they're not coming out. Where along that whole spectrum is your technique or your approach when you're writing a tune? Well, all of the above. I mean, I think that there's so many different ways of going about writing. The funnest way is when a tune just kind of, insp- a flash of inspiration and it just falls into your hands. And that 
it doesn't happen all the time. And I feel like maybe it happens less and less the more you do because I think your filter gets more and more fine-meshed. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, your critical thinking is like, oh, well, I kind of have already done that. I need to search for a new idea. But that that is fun, but it's not the only way to get a good result. I kind of have begun to feel that it's maybe equal parts inspiration and craft. And over time, you develop the craft of putting a tune together because you've seen what works and what doesn't work quite so well. So all that to say, some a lot of times I'm writing with an assignment that's kind of like, oh, we need a tune to kick off a set. Uh-huh. Or I'd like to find a tune that you know, uses a certain technique and has a certain kind of energy. Or I want to write a tune in C. Jens Kruger writes tunes in C all the time. <laughs> I never write tunes in C, so let, try to write a tune in C, you know? Right, right. Something so, like that. Or even to go to a, a tuning, you know, with like a drop C tuning and try to find something new there. Do you feel like you usually have a um, a preconceived vision of how it's going to end up? Like, for example, on your the Simple Pleasures album that you just mentioned, there are... There's some flute on it, and uh, definitely throughout your other albums, there's all sorts of instruments. Where, At what point does that come in? Are you just trying to think outside the box of how you would want to hear it as a listener, perhaps? Or, Well, you know, it's just been an evolutionary process, really. You know, there was flute on my first record because David produced, David Grisman produced the record, and he had uh, Matt Echo playing flute in the band. So we used a bunch of the guys. Jim Kerwin played bass, and... Matt Echo played a lot of flute. So those guys, I think if they hadn't been in Grisman's band at the time, it wouldn't have occurred to me to like bring flute in. But because David did, it kind of opened my ears to, you know, a way to go. So now we actually have a flute player in the band. <laughs> because there's there's a delicacy about the flute that I think complements the banjo really nicely melodically mm-hmm. without taking up a lot of sonic space and competing with the banjo. Yeah. And another thing that that strikes me about that album and really all of your music really is you're you're one of those players who just never seems to hit a bad note or have sloppy playing. It's just also clean and, and precise sounding. And it's hard to think that that's not connected to the way that you practice and just how, you know, what, what your process or how your, what's the word I'm looking for? Just the discipline that you must have with mm. practicing? Well, first of all, I mean, thank you very much for saying that. It's absolutely not true. I hit wrong notes all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to not hit as many as I do, but thank you for saying that. I really yeah. appreciate it. Um, you have us all fooled. Oh, uh, well, gee. <laughs> well, make my day. Thanks a lot, Keith. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like my practicing could be a lot more disciplined too, but I find that a lot of times I'm practicing for the thing that's next. Mm-hmm. So if we've got a band gig coming up, then it's a matter of pulling out those tunes and making sure that I've got the head and I've got basic ideas for where to go for solos and getting that back in my head and under my fingers. And that's a challenge when you've got a lot of stuff going on, you know, and if you're not touring and playing that music, you know, a hundred nights a year, which I'm not usually skipping around and doing a lot of different things. So that's what I would encourage people, you know, just trying to get the the music that they need to perform the next thing that they're going to be under the spotlight for, you know, turn your mind and, and attention to that. Make sure you've got the head. Make sure you can do it if you feel slightly nervous. You know, yeah. Colin Hay, um, who records for Compass Records, whom I've known for a really long time, and he's, you know, been to the top, top of the mountain of musical stardom as frontman yeah. for Men at Work. Men at Work, And yeah. he's done, you know, lots of big high-pressure things where you're like live television in front of, you know, 100 million people, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And he once said, you know, his, his routine is to practice it 15 times. If you can do it 15 times without making a mistake, you're ready. I think that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, yeah. You try to hold yourself to that of if, if there are any flubs, it's the counter starts over, so to speak. Yeah, I guess that's a good way to go. But then don't put too much pressure on yourself either because on some level I feel like audiences like the human side of live music. Mm-hmm. And so... If you make a mistake, they're experiencing a moment that's unique to your performance for them. And it kind of makes you more accessible in a way, Mm -hmm. Um, which is an interesting phenomenon because we spend so much time in the studio trying to perfect things. But when you get out in the world and you realize people actually really respond to something that's looser, you know, the humanness of it comes through. And I think that that can be a positive, too. So I'd say don't don't let it blow your vibe if you <laughs> crash right. and burn every now and then. And you improvise a lot when you 
perform, right? Um, I try. I don't consider myself to be a very good improviser, but I'm trying to get better at it. And it's like everything. I think that, um, you know, there's a, a spectrum of at least 180 degrees when you like talk about the scale of improvisation. Mm-hmm. And I actually recently taught a class about building blocks for banjo solos for the CBA Academy. Uh, California Bluegrass Association. And, you know, to try to help folks who are just trying to figure out how to make their first solo to roll in my sweet baby's arms, how do you step, how do you step onto that, you know, path? And, you know, so I've, I've thought about it a lot and I'm, you know, always thinking about, you know, working out of shapes on the neck. And if you kind of know where a chord shape is, then any note you hit in the arpeggio of that chord is going to be a note that you can play and not hit a wrong note yeah um and so the more that you can look at your fingerboard and not have it just be a bunch of you know strings and bars but rather like constellations of chords i think the closer you come to being able to really achieve like improvisational freedom i'm far from it though i might have my toe in the pond well how uh so that being said is that how you yourself think about it when you're working on improv ideas or solo ideas you you see these chord constellations or whatever it was that you, that's you what, said? That's what works for me. Uh-huh. Um, I think that's natural because when we start to learn banjo, someone says, okay, learn this G chord, now learn this G chord. And somewhere between these two G chords, you can find a D chord and a G seventh chord and a C seventh chord and a D seventh chord. And you start to see all these different shapes that are all just right under your fingers. So if you know that they're there, then you can play the notes that are under your fingers and you'll be just fine. That works for me better than the linear thinking of just like playing through scales, you know, and seeing yeah. just single notes. It works for me better to see it in the context of the shape of a chord. A bit more vertically, it seems, if that Yeah, makes I sense. think so, because yeah. that way there's a lot of safe places. If you're just playing a scale, gosh, there's only the one, the one note could be the right note that's under your finger at any given moment. Yeah. But if you kind of are seeing a chord, then there's several places you can land huh. and be in the safe zone. Yeah, that makes sense. Another aspect of your playing is you seem to have a really fluid grasp of melodic style up the neck. Are there are there any tricks you can think of of what made that easier for you? Or were there any discoveries that you as a player Well, uh, here again, thank you for saying that. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, I think that that maybe is just grown out of, A, being a banjo child of the 70s when melodic was a thing that, mm-hmm. you know, we all learned. And we learned our licks, you know. You know, we kind of learned our licks and we kind of see how those licks connect our fingers between different chord shapes mm-hmm. and then just kind of... I, th- I think that when you're playing melodic style, it's harder to truly improvise because you have to be aware of where the open strings are so you can move your hand. Yeah. So I think that that's more just learning patterns that get you from down here to up here and knowing when you can apply them. Okay. So that's within, that's totally within anyone's grasp, you know? Folks, we are in a golden age of online instrument instruction, and at the top of that world is Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation has streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, so you can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots Music. Check out the courses they have and this is just for banjo you could get beginning or bluegrass banjo with bill evans Clawhammer banjo with evie laden wade ward style banjo with bruce molsky the banjo according to danny barnes and contemporary bluegrass banjo with wes corbett each of those courses include high quality video lessons downloadable notation and tab play along tracks and plenty of tunes and songs to play and the best thing yet is you're going to get your first month free just by being a listener of this show. So go to pegheadnation.com and use promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout and claim your free month of the best instruction out there. And if you find yourself needing a banjo or accessories to get ready for those Peghead Nation courses, I highly recommend you check out Elderly Instruments, which is the world's most trusted source of new used and vintage stringed instruments, including banjos, guitars, violins, mandolins, ukuleles, 
all that stuff. They're going to have the best instruments you can find anywhere. And we're talking everything from the more affordable instruments for people starting out on up through the most highly sought after vintage instruments. Elderly Instruments has been family owned since 1972. And if you can't make it to their Lansing, Michigan showroom, you can see their full selection at elderly.com or give them a call at 517-372-7880 for some professional advice on all of your banjo and other stringed instrument needs. And you know what all these stringed instruments have in common? They all sound better with GHS Strings. GHS Strings is another sponsor of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, and I'm proud to say they have been made in Battle Creek, Michigan since 1974. And if you don't want to take my word for it, maybe you'll believe such people as J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, and Bela Fleck, just a few of the many, many users of GHS Strings. So go check them out, ghsstrings.com. They have a wide selection of gauged sets so that no matter what you're looking for, you'll be able to find something there. Let's talk about more of the business aspect as if people need something else to admire you for. You're also the co-founder of Compass Records, which you've been doing now for, tell me how many years? Well, um, 25 plus one. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. The asterisk with it. And I, I kind of view Compass in the same way as I would view something like Blue Note Records, like where maybe maybe jazz isn't your thing, but if it is your thing, you can reliably go to that place and know that you're going to get something that, that is good. And Keith, you're totally making my day, so you're keep make, talking. <laughs> you're, you're making my day, and uh, I prefer when you keep talking, because okay. that's why I'm here. Uh, so I guess I'm wondering... To what extent do you feel like Compass's catalog reflects like your personal music taste? About fifty percent. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Gary West, who's now my husband. Yeah. Uh, he is a bass player, and he came out of the R and B world. He was playing for Delbert McClinton before we met, and mm-hmm. then started the label. So, the catalog is very much like a reflection of our combined musical aesthetic. Okay. The bluegrass stuff, obviously, that's here because <laughs> of me and my passion for bluegrass music. Uh-huh. And the more acoustic side of things is the natural side of things for me, but we also do have more R&B-leading things. For example, Gary put out, uh, recorded and produced a record on Mike Ferris a couple of years ago, who's just like an amazing R&B you know, soul singer. Right. So, But what's so interesting is that he's a huge Jimmy Martin fan, so there is a certain connectivity about the whole catalog. No, Mike Ferris, who who you'd never guess to listen to him sing. You wouldn't think that that would be his space at all, but that was actually a real point of connection for him with the label. Oh, that was great. Um, Yeah, so yeah, we do bluegrass music and we do Celtic music, a lot of which grew out of our touring in the UK and Ireland and meeting artists that were looking for a good label outlet in the States. And that music's super relatable because it's, you know, it's one step removed from bluegrass music and the roots of bluegrass. And the contemporary players that are playing, you know, Celtic music, I think, are some of the most innovative acoustic musicians out there right now. Yeah, it's just beautiful stuff. What was, there was one that I recently discovered that was just terrific. It was uh, Catriona McKay's Oh, yeah, album. Starfish, that record. The, yeah. Yeah, beautiful it's playing. so wonderful. Yeah, um, we've worked with a lot of just amazing players like you must be familiar with john doyle yeah yeah of course rhythm yeah he's he's everything but i've had a chance to play with him a lot and i bring him in on on my own records a lot because he's not only like a rhythmic genius he's a harmonic genius too it's funny because celtic music is different than bluegrass in the sense that the improvisations in the rhythm section not in the melody right you know so it's kind of backwards like in bluegrass music we get to you know fool around the rhythm guys are still playing the same one four five but the lead players get to improvise around the melody it's the opposite in celtic music they're playing basically the same melody as precisely and most perfectly twinned as they can with the other lead players yeah and the rhythm guys are the ones that get to reinterpret the harmony yeah, I never thought about it like that. That's exactly right, and that's exactly what's so, so fascinating cool, about right? John Doyle is that he can take a three-chord piece of music and be playing everywhere on exactly. the fingerboard, and he'll do it in a dramatic fashion. And yeah. his harmonic sense just colors the music so beautifully. You know, yeah. it's like you can always go to a relative minor or something like that. Like what He has all that stuff so instinctively ingrained. Mm-hmm. 
and then couple that with this really powerful driving rhythm. It's just like riding the best wave, yeah. you know, getting to play with John. Yeah, I, in some ways I wish a lot of bluegrass players would adopt a bit of that, maybe under fiddle tunes or whatever the analogous mm-hmm. type of thing would Well, be. you know, and John played with Tim O'Brien for, yeah, for a long time. Yeah, I saw that band. That was a yeah, fantastic band. So cool. So that's interesting, too, that just, you know, technology and everything else has brought, you know, styles so close to each other that mm-hmm. the, the cross-pollinization is really exciting to me. Yeah. So all that... Being said, if if someone like me or anyone else was aspiring to become a Compass Records artist, what what type of things catch your ear in a way that make you potentially want to invest your your energy and money mm-hmm. and time into that artist? Yeah, it's what really moves me is like people that are doing something innovative within the acoustic space. Mm-hmm. That's you know just really what rings my bell. Um, but you know. We learned really early on that it's not enough just to have somebody whose art you really love. From a business side, an artist needs to have enough things going on that a label can then just like latch on and move at the same speed forward as the artist is. So, for example, if you have an artist who's playing great music or writing great songs, but they're not touring at all and they don't have, you know, any fans outside their mom and dad, (laughs) uh, they're not really ready for a label to be able to jump in and do what a label can do. Yeah. Um, so the, we've learned that the hard way. But on the flip side, you know, the idea of, you know, the DIY model for artists is so prevalent these days that mm-hmm. a lot of artists are, are already, you know, well along the road of thinking about building their fan base and their mailing list and their social media platforms up so that they have lots yeah. of followers and all that kind of stuff. So artists are much more, I think, self-aware of the bits that they need uh, business-wise than they were like 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah, seems like it. Before the the interview, I threw it out. I have a, a Facebook group for listeners of the show and just kind of broadcast, hey, if anyone has questions, you want me to ask Allison mm-hmm. Brown or wh- whoever else, let's hear them. So I have, I have some list of okay. questions from listeners. The first one is, and maybe I should have brought this up when we were talking about composing, but someone wants to know how you hear the banjo when you write or play and for example do you have other instruments in mind when you develop a melody i think this probably i don't have much more context than this but i think it probably just is out of the fact that a lot of your compositions don't seem like typical Mm -hmm. they're not foggy mountain breakdown yeah those kinds of tunes are the hardest for me to write actually i kind of feel like earl said it most the breakdown stuff yeah you know so it's like how do you pick out the melody of like shuck in the corn that that one's maybe easier to hear (laughs) than some of the other ones like how do you tell someone what the melody of foggy mountain breakdown is you know what i mean so those tunes for me are hard to write but yeah in answer to the question um i do think about other instruments and what instrument might be good playing ahead you know, maybe it's maybe uh-huh. I would write the melody on the banjo, but maybe it's a clarinet head. So I was thinking that because I'm working on a, a shoro to write to record with Anat Cohen, who's a great um, clarinet player. Huh. And I've watched a lot of her stuff on YouTube, and she's really deep into the shoros, and that's just beautiful Brazilian music, which right. to me is so connected to our music, to bluegrass uh-huh. music. It's just these melodically rich, harmonically pretty, you know, in the box. But just like gorgeous melodies, I just love them so much. Uh-huh. So I wrote the melody on the banjo and you know sent a lead sheet to her, and I'm like, hey, can you play this on the clarinet? And she said she could, so that's good news. Is, so is that a secret piece of music that I should not ask you to? No, uh, you to can play, ask. You can okay? ask me to play, and we see if I can remember it. Like the <laughs> the A section is something like.
something like that. Wow. So, yeah, that that should be really fun to record with clarinet. Banjo and clarinet obviously have been um, odd bedfellows with each other since jazz days. So I think it's going to be really cool. And then to put like a piano and maybe seven-string guitar guitar and pandero and make something that's just different but relatable. It's like a tune like that you could play with a fiddle and mandolin and it would work. So were were you – how familiar were you with – Choro music in general when you received this assignment and do you feel like you have a prerequisite to like study and do something authentically when you do something like that or are you well is there more to it than that uh, yeah so I really like to do things that aren't authentic I mean I like to know just enough and then try to like bring it into our world too or find a place where the quintet I guess it is these days you know our sound can kind of like go to a halfway point and meet someone like what Anat does. Um, so I, I've, I'm i familiar with Shoro music because of Mike Marshall, actually. Right. And I've listened to his Shoro Famoso record a lot and uh-huh. his Brazil duets record that he did years and years ago. And so I love those tunes, and that's how I'm familiar with them. Okay. But when I came up with this idea, I, I just listened to a lot of what Anat's been doing, Anat's been doing lately and try, just tried to come up with something that would have the right kind of energy and vibe and yeah. then you know tossed it to her and i'm like will this work and luckily she seems to think it will oh yeah i'm excited to hear that already that'll be that'll be really cool cool thank you there's another question any advice on navigating using wider chord voicings with maybe smaller hands mm-hmm. this came from yes other lady players yes uh, yes yes i'm so glad you asked that question um what you can reach is more a function of your thumb position on the neck than it is the size of your hand, in my opinion. Huh. So when you're trying to reach like a, a chord that seems like it might be, well, trying to think of a chord that's, even if you're just trying to play this voicing of a G chord, which looks like it would hurt. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, basically fifth fret on the fourth string all the way up to the ninth fret on the first string. Yeah. If you could see my, the back of my hand, you'd see that my thumb is like really almost down, you know, like it's, it's behind like the second string. Yeah. So a lot of times when I teach at banjo camps, especially this happens with guys with big hands, I'll see like these big thumbs hanging <laughs> over the neck. And then you look closely and you can see that the crook of their hand between their thumb and index finger is like right up against the neck of the banjo. Uh-huh. That's that's very bad because it, if you do that, your fingers are never going to reach anything. You're not going to have any mobility. Right. When my daughter was taking fiddle lessons, her fiddle teacher would always say, pretend that there's a little chicken that lives in that little crux between your thumb and your index finger, and you don't want to suffocate the, the little chicken. Oh, so no. that's a good way to look at it. And so It's a good way to look at it, but also traumatize your child probably. Oh, she didn't seem to mind. So, so, so as a starting point, like if I'm playing something like Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star chord melody... My thumb is more like a classical guitar player's thumb. It's starting off at flat in the back of the neck, uh, like behind the third string. And I'll add that another classical type of posture thing is that your your wrist was below the the neck quite a bit. Oh, right. That's, um, that's also good. Yeah. I think you kind of need it there to push with your thumb on the middle of the back of the neck. Yeah. So that's a great question, though. Um, mm. You know, I find that I can reach things that guys with big hands that are doing it wrong couldn't reach. Um, so I think it's a hand position more than a finger length thing. Right. Another question. You maybe have answered this, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. And, and if you feel like you've answered it, we can cut all of this out. But uh, he wants to hear you expound on something that this person heard you say in another interview that relates things to chord positions. So he he heard you say that Anytime you're using various ascending or descending phrases, whether they're scales or arpeggios or melodic ideas, you relate them to chords. Mm -hmm. And just wanted to hear you talk a little more about that and how that works. And I think that's probably what you were Mm -hmm. getting at before with seeing the fingerboard in that vertical way rather than the horizontal way. Um, Yeah, I was listening to a Tony Trishka interview, actually, after I taught my class for the CBA the other day. I Mm -hmm. stayed and watched Tony's class because I was really interested to see how he would present material to to students. He was talking a lot about, you know, playing six up and down the neck like this. And someone asked the question, you know, what fingers should I use? Especially on the first string, 
Should I use my ring finger or my pinky? Mm-hmm. And I and I found Tony's answer interesting because he was like, well, you could use whatever's comfortable. But if I were advising someone, I'd say, you need to use your pinky because even though you're just playing three and one, you need to see the fact that you could grab two and four. Right. Even though, so even though you're not playing those, your hand, your fingers kind of know that's where they need to go if we need to do something. So if I'm playing a melodic idea like uh, when I start to play that lick, which is up at the 12th fret, I'm seeing my G bar. And I'm just going. When I go back there to grab those two notes, I see the D chord, the D but shape. I'm not playing it. Yeah. If if I didn't do that, do it that way, I think I would just get too confused. Do you think a good general rule might be use the same fingers that you would were if you had to play the whole chord, and maybe that I uh, think so because get some muscle memory. Yeah, happening. not only muscle memory, but it kind of frees you up to when you get like further down the improvisation road. Mm-hmm. If you aren't using the right fingers, you're not going to be able to use your other fingers in the right way to grab yeah. other notes that you know are in the chord. So if I was playing this, this C, this the sixth and C, you know, ninth fret and tenth fret. If I was using my ring finger on the first string, then then my ring finger would not be available to do other cool things, which it could. You might want to do right. Things that you'd want to do, yeah, exactly. You're locked into the wrong hand shape. So, so it sounds like we need to have a call with Tony here, have some sort of intervention about, about this advice. He's probably given that to hundreds of people over the years. Well, or, or he just said it that day. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I found it interesting because a lot of what I think about is making sure you've got the right fingers on the right string yeah. and then keeping your other fingers free to do other stuff within the chord shape. Since I'm thinking in terms of the chord shape and trying to simplify the question of how do you improvise something, mm-hmm. you know? And another another thing too is I I think speed in playing banjo comes from having fingers that can stay on the same strings when you move chord positions. Like for example, if you're on this G chord, and like if you're doing the John Hickman thing I played, the Dixie breakdown. Well, the cool thing about moving between those two G chords is that your ring finger and your pinky stay on their strings. They right. just slide up. If you took your hand off and then went back to do the G chord, it would just take way more energy than you need to put into it, and you'd never get to do it very fast. Yeah. So that's something else to think about when you're moving between shapes, what finger can stay on its string. And that might guide you as to what finger you should be using. And that might also add, it seems, maybe a little fluidity to it, the banjo could, you know, is famously really staccato, and mm-hmm. if you're removing your hand, that's choking off notes that maybe you actually want a little bit of a tail leading into that yeah. next thing too. So I think so too. Yeah, I think so too. Cool. So yeah, I mean, I think anything that you play, stop and look at it and think about why it works over that chord that you're doing it in. You know, and it might. It might be like if you're playing this note on the second string, but you're playing it over a D chord, then it might help you see that there's a D seventh chord that's actually got that note in it, and there's two ways to voice it. And so then, like in your mind, you're seeing, well, two other D seventh chords you could grab, which is more notes you could play without hitting a wrong note. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Uh, The next question is about learning jazz or jazzier things on the banjo, and maybe ideas for people who want to learn how to sound like that using jazzy sounding ideas in their own improvisation mm-hmm. when it's more style appropriate to do that. Do you have any any advice for at, maybe some ideas to sprinkle in when, like I, th- I think this came from somebody who is a bluegrass banjo player, but sometimes plays songs with a piano player who does a lot of just really old standards or like Mm-hmm. Tin Pan Alley type stuff, and he wants to sound more jazzy on the banjo, more style appropriate, uh-huh. but maybe doesn't know how. Is, right. is there? How would we do that? Um, okay. Well, first thing is you can change the tone of your banjo depending on where you put your right hand, and I think mm-hmm. that's important. So if you're playing, I'm just. Of course, now can't think of any jazz standards except Spider-Man, which isn't a jazz standard. <laughs> but if you were playing Spider-Man, which is super fun to play in C minor, by the way, I 
suggest you try. Okay. Try it. So if you were going to play Spider-Man, like that kind of vibe. Well, if I go and play the melody like like I'm Ralph Stanley. Yeah. It's not as Way good as if, the bridge, yeah. if you go by the neck and then you can kind of make the sneakier sound. So be conscious of the tone of the banjo, which you can adjust by moving your left hand up towards the neck. And I'd say you definitely want to be at the halfway point or maybe even closer to the neck. Uh, I'll, I'll just mention, you said left hand, you meant right hand, and, moving and your right, right hand. hand. Yes, yeah. of course. Assuming you're yes. a right-handed player. Right, exactly. Yeah. And if you're a left-handed player, I'm afraid I can't help you <laughs> yeah. too much. Um, another thing that you can do that's a fun technique, I hear Noam Pakelny do it a lot, is is you can make like a really quick arpeggio by dragging your index finger backwards up the strings uh, of your right hand. Index finger of your right hand. And then I'm hitting the last note with my thumb. Yeah. So that's a nice thing. You can also play quick little arpeggios with your right hand, just playing a quick uh, four, three, two. Okay, so then the other thing you could do is like look for chord voicings that maybe have a little bit more color to them. So like, uh, you know, like uh, Spider-Man's going to go from a C minor chord to an F minor chord, back to the C minor to a G7 chord. And when you hit that G7 chord, you might think, okay, well, I know G7. It's like that. <laughs> but you really want to play it as a closed shape so you have more control over how long it rings. So you could play it like this. Or you could play it like this, or you could play it like this, or you could alter it by putting a sharp 5 in it. Or you can make it a 13. Eh, don't do that for a minor. But So instead of just going to a regular G7th chord, you could go to this. So, yeah. so chord voicings, I guess, would be a thing to think about. And it, it's nice for us because a lot of times when I'm comping... Um, on a jazz tune, I don't really even think about the fifth string or the first string. I'm just thinking about three notes because I've got right. three fingers on my dang right hand. So I'll just do <laughs> make my life easy. So then there's really not that much you can do. There's just three notes. So within that, those three notes, what can you do? Yeah, and I'll add something we just heard you do right there is just the even the rhythmic pattern mm -hmm. is is not a a boom chuck bluegrass pattern. There's there's a more jazzy right a more jazzy um, thing. Another thing that you can do that's oh let's see if I ever do this. It's kind of fun to sometimes stick the heel of your hand on your bridge to get a muted sound like uh -huh. that. Like if you were going to play, uh, what am I trying to think of? Yeah, if you're going to play... Something like, do you know what it means to miss New Orleans? Get kind of... That's a nice... That's a nice kind of other voice that you can give the instrument, or especially when you're comping on that tune. If your piano player is playing the melody and you're just comping... It sounds like a four-string banjo. Right, it's sort of a faux Dixieland thing. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Yeah, so there's all kinds of great stuff. There's so much you can pull from the four-string guys. Like, I like to sometimes just go to YouTube and pull up Eddie Peabody's mm -hmm. uh, banjo instruction stuff just because I love hearing his voice and uh, just the whole demeanor and his presentation of the banjo and thinking about... You know, the people that were watching that and trying to learn that style of banjo. When I was playing at Magic Mountain all those many years ago, playing Bad Dobro, almost everybody of a certain age who came up to me um, and asked me if I played, you know, or saw me play the banjo or whatever, would say, do you know Eddie Peabody? And I'd be like, no, Earl Scruggs. Yeah. Who's this Eddie Peabody guy? And it's only kind of more recently that I've kind of really appreciated what he did for the instrument. And it's interesting yeah, because I didn't know about these videos. When did when did he record? When did he it's record? It's audio. Those? That's what's so weird. They're okay. albums. Uh, you can find oh. them on YouTube. Yeah, I had and, no idea either. And I'm trying try to think if I can do this without screwing it up. Like a tune like um, "The World Is Waiting for a Sunrise." The sunrise. Uh, let's see if I can do these voicings for you. So the cool thing about plectrum banjo, which is what he played, and our banjo. 
is a uh, so one of the things that has been super fun for me to work on is his version of um, the world is waiting for a sunrise okay. because basically we're in home sweet home tuning but if I put it he, he'll show you on his little instructional thing how to play the chords and I'll do my best to play it with the with the uh, tuned down fourth string So you can take that, which wasn't great, but you kind of get the idea, and then you can turn it into bluegrass. It's all so connected. It's so cool. Those chord voicings can just be incorporated into what we do, and the tune works really well. Yeah. And then the last listener question is about Poe's Pickin' Party, which (laughs) this is about Ronnie Poe, I I take it? So I don't know who it's about. I can't, because I can't remember. I I know generally who it's about. Okay. Um, It was inspired by an article that I read in Bluegrass Unlimited magazine a long time ago. Okay. And it was about this Pickin' Party that took place somewhere in Virginia. And it was called Poe's Pickin' Party. Right. And the distinctive thing about this Pickin' Party is that women weren't invited to it. Because there was the idea that if men, women, and bluegrass music were to mix, there could be um, less than desirable consequences. Okay, that was exactly my question. I wasn't sure if this was something you attended yourself. And (laughs) you being a woman, of course, the question had to deal with, like, did that create some really awkward situations for you? But this, this was more just a... No, from a distance Yeah, kind this of is thing. totally, yeah. So the whole okay. thing was that the distaff bluegrass fans could enjoy the music from a safe distance listening on their front porches. And mm. of course, that's ridiculous. Um, it was ridiculous then. Nowadays, I don't think anybody would even publish an article that was that silly. Right. Because we all know that it's the yin-yang that's like the best part of it. Uh-huh. Like bringing men and women together in this music to me is like what's making it so exciting right now. And for my money, I think it's a female bands that are really leading the charge in some of the most interesting cutting-edge music coming out of the genre. But this was a while ago. It was probably, you know, in the late 80s or early 90s. Right, right. So when I read this article, I thought, well, that's <laughs> stupid. So I just died to wrote a tune for it. To get a little of your personal revenge back at... Uh, well, you know, child of the 70s, burn the bra and all that stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's talk about your instrument and... and gear stuff. What is your main banjo? And yeah, tell us about it. Uh, the one I mostly play on the road and a lot in the studio was made by Yaroslav Pruka, Pruka Banjo Company. It's a spirit banjo. Um, it's a model that he designed, you know, with my specifications and hopes and desires and uh, pretty much knocked it out of the park. It's got a radius fingerboard, which I really like. Yeah. It's got an extended fingerboard, which, you know, Seems like it's not something that you would need to have until you have it. And then you're like, how can I ever live without that uh-huh. high D at the very top? You know, yeah. it's so great to have. So this is the instrument I've been playing. Is that a maple? I can't see what uh, the wood. I would um, say it's mahogany. That. Okay. Um, I can find out. I love mahogany banjos, so I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a mahogany banjo. Okay. I don't know if you can tell by looking at it. That but actually looks, uh, the resonator looks, me. it's pretty dark stained. I shouldn't say anything yeah, without I'm looking. pretty sure it's it a, looks a mahogany, mahogany yeah. banjo, because that's my other banjo, which is also, you know, kind of the holy grail banjo that, you know, these days I'm kind of afraid to really travel with, is a Gibson, I think it's an RB3, okay. and it's 1938 original five-string oh, wow. flathead. So that's a really awesome banjo, uh-huh. too. And the it, the two banjos work for different things. It's like this banjo, I find, you know, I've got it tweaked so it's really warm and it's 
I've dampened down a lot of the overtones, and I think it makes it sit a little bit better in a lot of the tracks that I'm trying to do. When I pull out the Gibson banjo, it's kind of like a fine wine. It's got all these notes of cardamom and chocolate (laughs) or whatever. You know, it's just got this sort of sonic range, um, which is beautiful. But if you're trying to use it in certain contexts, sometimes it's not as effective as a banjo, like this banjo that's really more tamped down. How have you done that? How, how have you achieved the... Well, believe it or not, I have, I actually have a lot of paper towels inside, <laughs> inside the resonator. Uh-huh. And I think that really helps. You know, they're not, there's not tons. There's maybe like four or five in there. So it's killing some of the overtones, but it's not like so packed in that it's touching the head or anything like that. Okay. And I find that when I don't have the paper towels in a banjo, I kind of really miss not having the sound kind of more contained. This sounds like... a uh a new product. You can buy paper towels, <laughs> right. sell them as banjo tone enhancers for $5 per sheet. And there you go. And it kind of really dovetails with the end of the pandemic nicely because, <laughs> you know, everyone needs more paper towels right. in their lives. So yeah, exactly. that's a good idea. What about the, the rest of your gear? Let's talk about picks or tail pieces or bridge. If you have preferences on any of those and what you, what you like about them? Yeah. Well, picks, um, I've been using the 1941 showcase picks. They make mm-hmm. a slightly smaller pick, but it still has a standard size blade on it. And, um, I've been really happy with those. Um, and I've finally got a blue chip pick that's small enough for my finger, Oh, <laughs> uh, which is great. And I've been really into that. I've been prior to that, okay. I was using the multicolored Dunlops and those work too, but I do like the fact that the blade doesn't wear out. On yeah. the blue chips, you don't get that scratchy, scratchy sound. Right. Yeah, beyond that, well, I'm trying to think of what other gear. I've been running the banjo into a tone dexter, which I'm really liking. And yeah. I, and I use a Fishman amp on stage, which works well. Uh-huh. More as like a, an additional monitor than trying to have the banjo too loud. But I find that it that I play better when I can hear myself. What a concept. But, yeah. you know, even though our band is relatively quiet, I still do have someone playing like a percussive it's drum kit. So, drums and, yeah. Yeah, so it does, it is a very different sonic space than when you get to just play with a bluegrass band and the instruments are more balanced sonically than when you throw in a, you know, a grand piano and a, and a drum kit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. What about studio microphones? Is there, is there a go-to that you have that you, yeah. that you enjoy for that? We've been using Royer ribbon mics yeah. uh, lately, and I'm really into those. I think that they sound great. Yeah. Um, we've done many different things, but that's like that's by far the current favorite. Excellent. Yeah. I think that's most of what I have, but I want to make sure people can look up what you're up to if, in case you add tour dates or if they just want to find your recordings. How mm-hmm. do they do that? Well, probably the best way would be to go to... I guess alisonbrown.com would be one way, or just um, my site on the Compass Records webpage, which is Allison Brown. I guess it's a Compass Records forward slash Allison Brown. You could find it there. And then, you know, obviously on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, we're in that space too. Right. If anyone ever has any banjo questions, they can always email me at compassrecords.com. All right. That's fantastic. Yeah. Anything else I missed that you, you feel like talking about or, or golden nuggets of banjo wisdom that... That I should have asked about? Gosh, I can't really think of anything. You know, buy low, sell high, pick it solid. Right. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and play it forward. You know, not just forward mm. roles, but uh, we all have a role that we can play in the ecosystem mm. in terms of furthering this music and furthering this instrument. And no matter how much or how little you know, you know more than some, somebody else. And so it's really fun to pass the tradition along. And so even if all you know is uh, your basic cheese... G and D chords, there's somebody that you know who doesn't even know that much. And so use it as an opportunity to, you know, welcome someone else to the amazing fold of five-string banjo players. Yeah, be the John Hickman to somebody else's <laughs> Allison Brown. Yeah, or Eddie Peabody. Or, or Eddie Peabody, yeah, <laughs> Yeah, sure. because it's, it's great. And, you know, I like, I like to say, you know, with the banjo, the first chord's free. And so it's just a matter of learning one or two other chords Uh and you can play 80% of Western music and you're on your way to being able to play music with somebody else. And that's when it starts to get really fun. Yeah. Excellent. Well, that's a good place to to leave it. Thank you so much for having me and being a part of the show. Totally. My pleasure. Thanks for doing this. That's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening. The song clips you heard in this episode in order were Late on Arrival, performed by Allison Brown, 
Turkey Knob by John Hickman, Will You Be Leaving by Alison Krauss, Fantasy by Alison Brown, a set of tunes, The Chandelier into Anne LaVey's by Liz Carroll and John Doyle, and finally, Poe's Picking Party by Alison Brown. Thank you once again to the special Patreon supporter of the show. That's Taylor Shuck. Go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to support the show yourself. Email me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again so much for listening. That's going to do it for me, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.